In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. When you were a kid, did you ever have a eureka moment in school? You know, there was a concept you weren't understanding. And maybe it was frustrating you to no end. All your classmates seemed to get it. No one could understand why you couldn't. And then one day, maybe your teacher explained it to you a little bit differently. Maybe your parent or a friend was helping you, and all of a sudden, everything clicked into place. Now, I've seen it in tutoring and teaching algebra and geometry. Suddenly, those letters that made a a sudden and intrusive appearance in the middle of your numbers, they start to make sense. It's a glorious feeling, especially after that utter frustration of not understanding the concept. Now, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. God knows us. He knows us thoroughly. He knows us better than we can know ourselves. Jeremiah told God that he didn't have the ability to fulfill the call that God had on his life. But God could. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I would point you over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Jeremiah, I can say with the same confidence, our psalmist wrote with this morning, For you are my hope, O Lord God, my confidence since I was young. I have been sustained by you ever since I was born. From my mother's womb you have been my strength. My praise shall always be of you. In our gospel reading this morning, we begin with Jesus saying to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now their initial reaction was excitement. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is this not Joseph's son? But Jesus almost immediately looks at them and says, Listen, I know what's in your hearts. You're thinking, Physician, heal thyself. You're thinking... Do those same miracles for us that you did elsewhere. Jesus, you grew up around here. You owe us. Jesus' response in citing two different Old Testament stories needs a little unpacking this morning. Jesus starts by saying, But the truth is there have been many, many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah went to none except the widow in Zarephath in Sidon. Now this story starts in 1 Kings 16 when Ahab becomes king. Now if I mentioned Ahab just to you this morning, what comes to mind? And no, I'm not talking about Gregory Peck and a great white whale. I'm talking about the Ahab from the Bible. Now he does everything wrong that his fathers and grandfathers had been doing, but more. Now if I said Jezebel, his wife... What comes to mind? You probably have some much better ideas about who Jezebel is. At the beginning of 1 Kings 17, the Bible says, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Elijah runs away and for the next while lives by a brook until it runs dry from the lack of rain. God then directs Elijah to leave Israel and go to Zarephath, which is just up the coast from Israel in Phoenicia. When he arrives at the town gate there, he sees a woman gathering sticks for a fire. 
He asks her for a drink of water and some bread. And her response is dripping with venom. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a last meal for myself and my son, that we might eat it and then die. Elijah assures her that if she'll make him a small cake of bread first, that her and her son, that the Lord God will take care of them all. She does this, and God takes care of them. Later on, while Elijah's staying with them, her son dies. In her grief, she asks what she's done to offend Elijah. Why would God let her son die? He asks for her son to be brought to him. He prays to God, and the son is brought back to life. Then she proclaims the greatness of God. She's a Gentile. She's not a Jew. Naaman is a Syrian general who's called a valiant fighter, who in 2 Kings 5 finds himself stricken with leprosy. A young girl that he'd taken in a raid from Israel, who he has as a slave, tells Naaman's wife, too bad we're not in Israel. If we were in Israel, there's a prophet there that could heal him. Naaman hears this, talks to his king, who writes a letter to the king of Israel asking for help. Now, when Naaman arrives, he goes straight to, to the king in Israel, who reads the letter and tears his clothing up, thinking the Syrians are trying to have a provocation to be angry, a reason to start a war. He's a king. He's not God. He can't heal the man. But Elijah's protege, Elisha, is now the prophet in Israel. And when he hears about the king's words, he sends a message to the king. And soon Nathan is entourage horses and chariots, because Naaman was wealthy and was bringing a fortune with him, hoping to pay for his healing. Elisha sees him, tells him to wash himself in the river Jordan seven times, and he'll be healed. And Naaman, the Syrian general, the man who's fought valiantly in battle more times than he can count, he's infuriated. He thought Elijah was going to come out, pray to God, wave his arms around, the way prophets do, and he'd be healed. Aren't the smallest rivers in Syria better than the River Jordan, he asks. But the people with him, they say, Naaman, don't be proud, go and do it. If the prophet had sent you on some mighty quest for your healing, would you have even hesitated? Go, go do it. So Nathan went down to the River Jordan and washed himself seven times. And after the seventh time, it says, His skin was like the flesh of a small child. He comes back and declares, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. Elisha refuses all the presents. Could have made him wealthy. Naaman asks for dirt from Israel, since he's no longer going to offer sacrifices to any other god and wants to make his own sacrifices somewhere holy. He ends up taking two donkeys worth of dirt with him. Then he asks for grace when the king calls on him and they go to worship the Syrian gods at their temple. Elijah says, go in peace. And Jesus, Jesus says, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. And being reminded that during the lives of two of the greatest prophets in history, They found faith in outsiders and not 
the people's listening's ancestors. And Jesus looks at them and says, you're just like them. They get so angry, they rush him. They go to throw him off a cliff. But he ends up walking in the midst of them unharmed. And Jesus doesn't perform any miracles in Nazareth around the people he grew up with and cared for. He ends up back in Capernaum and performs miracles there. Paul writes this morning, If I speak in the tongue of men and angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. The last two weeks in our epistle readings, Paul's been writing and talking about the gifts that God has left to strengthen his church. But this morning, writing to that same church, that church has been racked by divisions, racked by misunderstandings of the freedoms that they have in Christ. And although the church is still growing and still having an impact in Corinth, and Paul says to them, your gift is not what is important to God. Or the church. It's your love. Now in the generation since Paul wrote this, we have countless examples of people who have impacted the church and society greatly, both for good and for bad. But without love, spiritual power is nothing. And in fact can have negative impacts on the church, like it is here in Corinth. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. There are Bible stories and passages that are ingrained in our culture outside of the gospel. This description of love has launched a million marriages, and it's true but it's very hard to live into. And Paul here is not talking about marriage. He's talking about the way that we live as the church, the way that we live in the world. Paul wants his readers to understand what he means when he's talking about love. When the apostles and the elders write things like, God is love. What does that mean? It means that there's a God who heard Naaman's cry when he cried out that he needs God's mercy when the king calls. The God who saw the brokenness of the world. That God. The one who sent Jesus. That's love. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they'll come to an end. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part. We prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. There will come a day when we no longer need those gifts that God left for the church either because we've gone on to our reward or because everything will be completed as part of the great hope of Christ's return. But God is love, and his love is from everlasting to everlasting. Love will never cease. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put away all childish things. For now we see in a mirror darkly but when we will see face to face, for we know only in part, but then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide. And of these three, the greatest of these is love.
more well-borrowed verses. Have you ever been told to put away childish things? Been told you're only seeing things in a mirror darkly? Given what Paul's talking about here, were those people saying it, wishing you secretly dead? Even Paul, even Paul didn't fully understand what was going on. He had questions. But when we are with our Savior, all things will become clear. That eureka moment will hit us for the last time. But just like God knew Jeremiah in full, when we're reunited with Christ, we will fully know God. In a way that Paul couldn't know him when he wrote these words. In a way that we can't fully know him now. But Paul tells us that when we see him face to face, then we will know. But our hope is not in our ability to understand, thanks be to God. It's even in our ability to understand God and his plans. Yes, I'd love to know and understand the whys of life. Why did this happen? God, why am I going here and not there? But God's grace is greater than us. Paul says, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And in the end, we have to trust, even when we're looking through that mirror darkly, the God who loves us, the one who sent Jesus, the one who has sent us the great hope of the resurrection, that he will be my strong rock, a castle to keep me safe. For you are my crag and my stronghold in all that we deal with in life.